Hey guys, Abel here, and in this next 45 minutes, you will hear our seventh Q&A that we did with Birge Fuggerly. We covered some questions related to what we eat in a typical day, because some people seem to be interested in that, how you can micro-load certain exercises effectively, and how you can quit some of your culprit foods for good if you feel like you need to. So this will be a cool Q&A, and I'd also like to tell you that our SSD training and nutritional program that we've been hinting at here and there will be coming out as of August 27, 2018 and is now available for pre-sale. So if you go to sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program, you can get the full package plus some bonuses at a pre-sale price. But I'd actually recommend that you go over to sustainableselfdevelopment.com, plug in your email address there and you'll receive an email shortly which will get you a discount even on the pre-sale price. So I think that's a pretty sweet deal personally. So if you enjoyed listening to the nutritional and training concepts we've been talking about here for a while, then I would recommend that you go ahead and check this program out at the links we provided at the show notes. Okay, so um, that's enough of the shameless plugging for now, and let's get into this Q&A with Berge. Uh, all right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is our seventh Q&A, if I'm counting correctly, and uh, we selected a couple of good questions here again. And uh, yeah, this will be in a pre-recorded format once again. So forgive us for not having, not being able to supply with an, with a video this time. But hopefully, we'll still get value out of this. So with that, let's uh, not kill too much time and uh, let's go ahead with the first question. Uh, so, uh, well, the first thing I want to ask you, Berge, because um, we get a lot of these questions, and um, you know, we always try to provide some context and steer people away from. Kind of this mindset of just tell us what to do exactly or what you're doing exactly and i just had a facebook post about this today but uh, nevertheless i think just to be charitable and to give people some perspective let's answer this question like what do you eat in a typical day like i don't know can you recall roughly what you ate today or i don't know do you remember what you ate yesterday like just let's give people some idea well i remember what i ate today obviously but uh it tends to vary a lot from day to day according to what i'm doing so on some days where I, I just have a crazy hectic schedule, I just default to some very simple meals, which is basically just meat and or eggs with, you know, maybe some tomato sauce or whatever, and just spice it accordingly. So it's, it's really simple, just um, put it on automatic so I don't have to think too much. Uh, today was a workout day, so I didn't really have anything to eat before hitting the gym since it was really early. But I came back and uh, I had some of my own protein powder from my own brand in the, some sour cream and coconut milk uh, just to fatten it up. Um, or, or actually also had some lemon flavored fish oil and this fish oil has a neutral taste so it, it doesn't affect uh, the overall taste of it. Um, then I had some berries in season, uh, blueberries and um, some blackberries. Um, so just a pretty big portion of that and just ate it and uh, that was it for my breakfast. Uh, later on I just had uh, meat and some eggs and for dinner I had meat and some eggs. So, so not really all that special. Oh yeah, I did have some cheese for my dinner. So it's quite simple really. It's, it's basically meat in some type of variation. Oh and, and for lunch I did have meat with liver. Meat, liver and, and some eggs. So I tend to eat some organ meats uh, at least twice a week, maybe even more. Uh, meat is a staple of at least two out of three meals. 
Uh, and since I do enjoy to make my protein powder pudding, I just take my own protein powder, which is a milk, milk protein isolate with whey protein isolate. Add some milk fats to that since that's, uh, you know, good for satiety and, um, and anabolism, according to some studies. Uh, I like some coconut milk in that for the flavor and um, sometimes some almond or almond flour and that's like my go-to snack once in a while or just for something quick and easy if I don't feel like having uh, meat. As for veggies, uh, it's mostly just steamed uh, carrots. Uh, today I tried a new recipe with cauliflower rice where you just um, grate a cauliflower and then saute it in a pan with uh, some butter for like 8 to 10 minutes and uh, spice it with salt and pepper and that was actually pretty awesome. So I guess today was a more, a more vari varied um, meal template than usual where I feel like I lean out better and, and feel better if I just do things on automatic if I don't you know go all crazy on different uh, types of uh, foods or, or meals from throughout the day so just keeping it simple and put it put it on automatic without stressing too much about it tends to provide the best best results as soon as I start getting the need for various flavors and variety and stuff that's usually related to having a lot of stress in my life and and I do see the correlation between that and and um, not being able to maintain a low body fat percentage as easily and and that's usually what you see in people that are that have food issues it's it's one of reward and or deprivation punishment that that tends to drive disordered uh, eating habits and uh, once you don't really think much about food, that's when food stops controlling you. Yeah, um, I, th I think I think this is an interesting one for people to pick up on because, like, I got to hang out with you for a, a weekend, and uh, you know, I, I see, I saw how you're preparing food and the things that you were eating, and I think that a lot of these the people who tend to ask these types of questions, like, what do you eat in a day, or how do your meals look like? I think if they would have seen your kind of meals and how you prepare food i think a portion of them would have been really disappointed i think because they expect that you're like sitting in the kitchen with a glucose monitor and every meal is its own you know scientific experiment or whatever yeah. but really like uh, and i think another portion of the these people would be really relieved because they would see how easy it is and like you just like other people make some random decisions just based on how you feel and you don't really overthink things and your meals look pretty simple like um I think anybody could replicate if they just, you know. Ooh. Yeah, and for sure. And I mean, it's not like what you eat is completely irreversible. Uh, meaning that, oh no, I made a bad decision food-wise. I ate something I didn't really want or like, or uh, it was the wrong macros or calories or whatever. It's not like that's irreparable damage. I mean, you, you probably have one or two more meals to make up for it. And you have the next day, and you have the next day, and the next day, and uh, and so on for the rest of your hopefully long life. So So it's not like that one meal is going to make or break anything and i i think people get so hung up on getting everything perfect and macros and calories that they forget that that, that we are perfectly able to auto regulate what we eat according to what we just ate if we just tend to, you know if we're more aware self aware if 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 we are more mindful of what we're actually eating and what it what it does to us how do you feel eating it how do you feel afterwards did you get 
full and satiated or are you still hungry? Are you craving something? You know, the more we listen to experts and the more we read stuff and try to copy what others are doing, the less we, be, you know, remember to listen to our own bodies. This is a learning process. I mean, I, I know by now, I'm, I'm 44 years old, I know how much I need to eat according to a certain level of hunger. And, and if, I, if I miss that for some reason, if my calorie needs were higher than I thought at the moment, I just have another snack, you know, I just have a snack uh, one or two hours later, like I'm sitting there and preoccupied with food and you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm still hungry. So I just go and grab a piece of dark chocolate or a handful of nuts or whatever. It's not like everything is ruined just because you, you missed hitting those exact macros. And besides, who, who even told you that these macros were perfect for you? We're, we're trying to hit a moving target here, so you can never be perfect. So the sooner you can just let go of that notion, the, the better it will be for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that a lot of times when people commit to a new nutritional strategy, they think it's an on and off switch. Like, okay, I made this decision to eat a certain way, and then I make a slip up or I make some mistake or maybe ate something that didn't make me feel the way I planned that it would make me feel. And then they think that, okay, now it's the whole whole plan is ruined and they stepped off the wrong path. But I mean, it's a, it's a learning process, like you learn as you go. So Yeah, and we we're yeah. perfectly able to do this when we were children. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that while we're adults. Exactly. Cool. I think we knocked this one out pretty well. Um, so uh, there, we had a question and it came up a couple of times, but it was regarding the how to load uh, exercises pretty well and um, or how to load exercise, how to micro load things. And I think uh, a more relevant question here would be, um, what would you recommend for exercises that you're not able to load with tiny increments? So for example, barbell, uh, bench press, for example, you might be able to progress in, you know, by 2% or 5% every week. But what if you're using a machine and, you know, it has jumps, which are, might be as high as like 10, 20, even, you know, sometimes 30%. So what would you do in that case? Would you maybe repeat the same load another week or, or something like that? That's something I experimented with, for example. Yeah, if the, the increments are bigger, you just reuse that load for you know, another workout or two. It's not like that load just stops working. So there are many ways of doing that. You could work slightly submaximally at that load for the first increment, and then you just go closer to failure on the next workout and the next workout. Now that's one way of doing it. Uh, on the others, you can actually just alter the moment arm so you would, uh, and leverages. So for instance, on lateral races where there's like one kilo or maybe even two or two, 2.5 kilo jumps, which is uh, for some, people, you know, 20 to 50% jump in, in load increments, you can just bend your arm when you jump up in, in loads and shortening the lever arm will just reduce the experienced load by the muscle. So the progression for that can just be gradually extending your arm from workout to workout. Um, other than that, it's pretty simple to hang weights on most weight stacks. Um, and if not, you can, uh, on some exercises, you can have ankle or uh, wrist weights around your arms uh, or legs to, to add loads. Uh, you can put something on top of the weight stack or hang weight plates off the, the selector pin. And if not, I don't know, do a different exercise if that really bothers you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, I think I have nothing to add. The, the ankle weight is really good. Um, just, just a random question. Do you think that um, 
on the leg extension, it's good enough. If you're doing a single leg leg extension, it's good enough to put it on your ankle or would it be better to put it on the, the weight stack? Um, um, I think on the ankle is fine simply because, uh, you know, that's, that's an exercise that's very well suited to my reps and um, my reps where the point is to have internal occlusion the more load and loading and even contraction you, you can have, like load in the contracted position or just hold it isometric in, in the contracted position, the better. So having an ankle weight will actually add more load to the contracted portion of the rep. So, so I think that's, that's probably going to be just fine. Cool. Um, we had a question, and this popped up a few times in d various iterations, but um, you talked about how you did your genetic uh, makeup test or, or blood test or saliva test. I don't know exactly what, what, which one was the one that you used, but uh, the one with 23andMe, which tracked back your Viking ancestry. Mm -hmm. um, so if people are interested in doing something like this, what would be uh, some of the tests that you would recommend? Because um, I guess for some people it might be more difficult to attain something like that than for others. Well, you know, 23andMe would be the default service that I know of. Uh, that's the most complete and even allows you to start tracking into your family tree. Um, but other than that, you know, you're just going to have to ask your mother and your grandmother or great-grandmother and, and, you know, sort of ask your family where where you're from. Uh, but, but don't, like, make this something that totally... Uh, just totally rules your your diet perspective it's it's simply meant to be a type of guideline so for instance if if you're asian you you probably do well eating rice and 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 less well eating dairy whereas if you're scandinavian you would probably do well eating dairy but if you eat dairy and you get explosive diarrhea then you know that's not for you so i think you know the the problem with with providing all of these guidelines and and um just overall direction in, in what can be a good way of looking at training and nutrition is that people get obsessed about them. And, and the point of this group and the point of this, this whole concept is to steer people away from the micromanaging and begin actually listen to, listening to their intuition and their own bodies. Yeah. And, and the more you need to think and analyze and reflect and, and get obsessed about this or that rule, the less you're actually understanding what we're trying to accomplish here. So, so yeah. I just want to put in that caveat there, but, but yeah, for sure, if, if you're black or you're Asian or you, you're a, of a certain ethnicity, then you most certainly will have some sort of idea of what would be a good idea to eat. But whether you're like Irish or Scottish or English or, or German, you know, that's region, regionality-wise, you're still from the same part of the world as a large, you know, part of the, the, the population that is used to eating a certain way you know you're you're also living at, in on, on a latitude and a country where just defaulting to the seasonally available foods will take care of most of it simply because that's where the highest nutrient density is so so i don't think this is another thing to get obsessed about and even with a genetic makeup and, and the dna data well, you can run that through all of these analyzers and, and um, get a certain genetic predisposition for disease or whatever. But at this point, I think letting that govern your training or nutrition might be a little premature. It's fun to experiment with, and I have. 
And it was, you know, it had a high level of accuracy. And uh, I even sold some, some DNA testing kits for a while that, that I believed were of high quality. But um, it's still in its infancy. And there are so many interactions between genes that... that and, and, and it also kind of boils down to the fact that genes are what's known to load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. So you can have genes for both positive and negative things, but what you choose to do with those genes and how you live your life is ultimately the, what decides the, the, the end result. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, so let's not get too obsessed about it. But perhaps a question that ties into this and uh, this recent podcast episode that you did with Mike Isretel uh, also uh, spoke of that. So the seasonality and, and dieting. So uh, one, one point that came up in that podcast uh, episode is that, you know, like depending on where you came from, what is summer or what has been summer in your ancestry might be actually winter for another person. Hmm. So um, would, would you like, would it be actually possible that some person might actually do better with carbs in the winter whereas generally we would say that you know like carb tolerance and how well you respond to carbs might be better in the summer for most people but for some people it actually might be during the winter because during that period of the of the year uh during their their ancestral times or like like in their genetic history that's where they would have experienced summer um yeah that that could be that could be for sure um but still, um, I mean, genes take like generations and hundreds and even thousands of years to, to form. And like I also said during the podcast, for the most part, we would never have access to really high carb density foods. This, this has been like a modern phenomenon where we learned how to process and, and uh, even breed uh, certain types of plants and fruits to, to yield higher carb content uh, than ever. And a large part of the diet, just like the two papers that I posted about in the group, through anthropological evidence, uh, we, we have mostly evolved on animal-based, animal-sourced foods as, as a staple food. But, but yeah, for sure, I mean, let's not get too hung up on that one either and, and feel free to experiment. And, and if, you, if you notice, I mean, I mean, what if your ancestors were from Australia and then you live on the Northern Hemisphere? Then perhaps since you have for generations been having, you know, sunlight when it was winter time in the, or summer when it was winter up north in in uh, in Norway, then perhaps you would be predisposed to having a higher carb tolerance uh, during winter than during summer. But you're the only one who can actually tell whether that's true or not. I mean, why don't you try it and, and see what happens? It's not like an end-all, be-all kind of thing. It's just a general trend. And what you will see happening in your own body is that the lack of sunlight and the lower temperatures will lower your individual carb tolerance during the winter where you live, regardless of what your ancestors did. But what your ancestors did and where they lived might have a saying for your overall carb tolerance. So, so the seasonality aspect is, I guess, would be more related to where you actually live now, whereas the the general carb tolerance of of you as as a you know of your ethnicity or ancestry would be more dependent on where your ancestors lived and what types of foods they ate. Case in point is that I had a client from um, I think it was from Iraq, and he you know came to Norway. Uh, 
or he was born in Norway, but but all of his you know parents and grandparents came from Iraq, and he just got a lot of bloating and and GI issues and didn't really you know get the results they expected from from his diet, which was set up by this uh, this uh, Norwegian coach. Um, and, and he just asked me for advice, and I told him, well, maybe you should ask your mother or grandmother uh, how to prepare foods, and perhaps there's some kind of forgotten wisdom there. And he said, well, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense, because every time he went home or, or back to Iraq and visited his family there, he, he actually had no issues, and he, he tended to lose weight, but he, he hadn't really thought of it, thought of it uh, that way. So he started to implement some of the, their traditional foods into his diet, and lo and behold, he started actually reducing his, uh, you know, GI problems and, and getting better body composition. So I think, you know, it's a little of both. Um, but these are things to, to make you become more open-minded about nutrition and stop reading what some expert is doing online or trying to copy what that expert is doing and becoming more mindful of what type of foods and what would you would actually feel better eating yeah fair enough cool i think we knocked this one out pretty well um so uh next question is regarding uh, protein intake for like um there there have been a lot of questions with regards to your uh change in stance over time about protein intake and how to titrate that in as opposed to fats if you want to try a lower carb or more of a carnivorous approach mm -hmm. and um, as we talked about earlier like when you wrote your book you talked about you feeling much better on a higher protein intake and a little bit lower fat intake and over time you started feeling not so good on high protein intake like can you talk about uh, how that experience was for you and and perhaps like how can people go about setting their initial uh, diet up when they start out with something like this and how they can take into account things like uh, body fat percentage or you know just how much body fat they have in general and things of that nature well again going back to what we have been discussing in previous q a's the, the available fat for energy in your body is the sum of dietary fat and stored body fat uh, the protein intake should most of the time be a function of the muscle mass you have on your body so setting protein intake uh, according to body weight may skew that number excessively high if you're really overweight but given that protein may have a satiating effect you could very well do a higher protein intake so for instance just use uh, like a general guideline of 1.8 to 2 grams of protein per kilo body weight as that would you know drive protein intake higher when you have more body fat uh, and then just consider how much body fat you have to lose and so that's why the guidelines in the zero carb book made so much sense having like a one-to-one -one ratio and even fat slightly lower in grams than protein because at the time i was leaning out and i was leaning out at a rapid rate but once i got lean and i didn't have enough body fat stored to mobilize and provide energy for fuel then i needed to increase my dietary fats to compensate for that and that's the, the explanation for that. And I also felt like to, if I kept the same ratio, like the low, lower fat and the higher protein, like more protein than fats, and ate to satiety, I tended to eat so much protein that it, it, it probably, or it, it didn't probably, but I had a measurable uh, disturbance in my blood glucose regulation and insulin regulation. So I would, I would uh, like get blood, gluco blood glucose that spiked 
so high that you would think I had eaten a meal of carbs, and, and then blood glucose dropped due to the compensatory release of glucagon, um, and I would actually become severely hypoglycemic. So lowering the protein, increasing the fats just stabilized everything for me. Uh, so I think when you are weight reducing, you should, you know, you could have higher protein and less fats simply because you are deriving energy from the stored body fat. But as you get leaner, you should probably gradually or even stepwise increase the fats to compensate and then lower the pro protein down to, in my opinion, you can do just fine with 1.6 to 1.8 even up to two grams of protein per kilogram of lean body weight. So that's body weight minus fat mass. Or just make it simple and go with 1.8 grams per kilogram of total body weight because that's gonna be pretty close to what you would calculate uh, from your you know, lean body mass anyway. Right, um, and, and perhaps that could also be a way to auto-regulate uh, food intake for people, like maybe they have a couple of days, if they, let's say, are not trying to lose fat, but just maintain or they are focusing on muscle building, maybe they have a few days when they are going higher fat, maybe they feel like they overdid things a little bit or something, and, and maybe they can auto-regulate things by then including more higher protein, a bit lower fat days, and over time it kind of balances out. That could be a strategy as well. Yeah, and for sure. How many meals don't, don't just balance out during a single day. They balance out during a week and, and several weeks. So things, the process in the body that makes you build muscle and lean out, these things take time. It, it's not like you can make or break anything from experimenting for one or two days just to see what, how you feel. And, and even if you choose to go like all in on keto or all in on carb-based diets or whatever, and you've just been on keto, it takes the body at least three to five days, maybe even up to one to two weeks to adapt to, to that change. So, so yeah, I think that the most sustainable approach would just be uh, if you've never done keto adaptation and you have some metabolic flexibility issues uh, where you just, you know, just feel horrible if one meal or one day is low in carbs, then you would probably do well just having a four to six week period of lower carbs or even a ketogenic diet. But otherwise, let carbs just naturally fluctuate according to your individual tolerance and your needs. And uh, see what happens if you, if you vary the protein and fat content of each meal. And again, as you could see when I visited you, I didn't micromanage or weigh or measure anything. I just sort of if I eat leaner meats, I tend to add a fat source just to even things out. But but sometimes I just have like a high protein meal with maybe no added fats at all. So so it, it just varies and, and it's not like, oh no, I feel sleepy or I feel lethargic or I have more or less energy. Maybe something I ate. No, it might not be. It might be because, you know, energy fluctuations are pretty fucking normal during a given day. Yeah. So it's, it's easy to just be OCD about, oh my God, did I do something wrong? Or, or did I not do something that was perfect? You know, it's, it's called life, people. It's, it's called being a human. You can never be 100% all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, 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 one final thing I want to mention here is that it was funny that we talked about this when you visited me and we both, both said the same thing, that we both had that experience when we did very high protein diets for extended periods that we just not only became kind of uh, low energy and had a lot of mood swings, but we also almost felt like we had no emotions, which is yeah. really strange. Exactly. Like, uh, 
yeah, I would, I would like sit with my girlfriend and normally I would be used to feeling a certain way. And I was like, just nothing happening. I felt like a, a robot. Yeah. It's like, you could say me anything. I could not be insulted. Like you, you cannot break my heart because I don't have one right now. <laughs> it's really, I, I don't know how that works, honestly, but it was really interesting. Well, it's because these, you know, different foods and macronutrient composition tends to, uh, it tends to drive neurotransmitter balance uh, and also add on top of that how you live your life and you could set yourself up for some sort of imbalance. And that's, you know, we also discussed the neurotyping thing and it's been discussed before on the, um, in, in the Facebook group. I, I think if you really see a strong dominance in one direction or the other, you know, whether it be impulsivity or the need for being OCD and planning everything, I think that's a sign that, that perhaps you have been doing stuff like food or training too much in one certain way for too long and that it's time to change something and do the opposite to drive you in the other direction and thus make you more balanced. Yeah, well said. Cool, let's go to the next question which is regarding, um, I guess uh, the general theme here is junk food that people might crave. and. Um, you know, we talked about it a few times that sometimes the best way to manage a craving is to starve it. But like, what have been your experience with that, that kind of a thing? Like, I can tell that when I started, for example, or when I did my about six weeks of a carnivore diet experiment, initially, even craving things like berries and some of the carb sources, which are not like junk food, but I was craving them like crazy. And as the weeks passed, I was not craving them at all. But like, what is your experience with this? Like, can you really quit... Um, certain foods that you crave and you might be overeating on them like you would quit alcohol or smoking or something like that? Yeah, for sure. That's the way the brain works. It has a certain memory of, uh, of uh, the, the, the flavor and sensation of eating a certain type of food and connects that to, to various emotions in your body. And the only way to remove that is let it fade from memory. And so if you stop eating it, eventually it will disappear. You know, before we had chocolate, no one craved chocolate because we didn't know what it was. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, for sure. And if we only had access to, to meat during the whole winter, it wouldn't serve as well to, to go craving for blueberries, fresh blueberries, for instance. And, and I, I, I doubt that people around the equator where they don't even have those berries really go around craving blueberries. So for sure, it's connected to your memory. But, but also keep in mind that some cravings may simply be, be because you, you have some type of nutrient deficiency. If you're under eating, if you're chronically dieting, then for sure you will crave more stuff simply because the brain is primitive and asking you to eat more. Right. Yeah. I think I have nothing to add. Like it's, uh, I had culprit foods, which, which were like just absolute, like I would try to introduce them in moderation sometimes for the longest time. And I would just always end up overeating on them. Mm -hmm. And, um, even when I didn't eat them for a long time, I just had these, uh, like would think of them with these fond memories, like how cool it would be to in indulge in them. And now, honestly, I don't even remember how some of those things taste. And maybe I could now eat them in moderation. I don't know. But it's just I don't revisit them because I just don't really feel the, the need to. But, yeah, it's, yeah, it can be daunting for a lot of people, I think, for a while. But, um, yeah, it's just like any kind of craving or quote-unquote addiction, even though food addiction doesn't really – is debatable yeah, whether it's really I mean, exists. I want to add in, though, that, you know, you, you need to make a personal decision whether eating that food is – like an investment you are willing to make. If that makes the diet better or, or more like a natural way of eating for you where you don't feel like you're restricting, then I think you should keep doing that. I mean, a good, a good example of this is my girlfriend. I mean, she's also been eating this low-carb 
way for, for a while, simply because she was equally com convinced that it was the optimal way of eating as, as I was. You know, not like super low carb, but she went keto for a while and then gradually brought back in um, carbs. But she has a tendency from her past experiences to start obsessing about what she's eating. If things become too, like, um, that you need to follow certain rules in order to eat and, and choose your, your meals. And, and I just kept asking, well, what's, I mean, what's the issue? What do you actually, if you need to actually eat like rice or potatoes or whatever, then, you know, you should eat that. No, it wasn't like that. It's not like she, and she didn't even feel good eating those foods anyway. But, but it, it was just like eating this way uh, now had, had sort of tended to mess with her head to the point where she started, uh, you know, weighing and measuring stuff and thinking about whether this was okay to eat or not. And I said, well... You just need to let, let that shit go and okay, f figure out what do you actually need that would help you in getting to the point where eating this way becomes automatic and not something you need to stress about. And lo and behold, we identified the problem. She had been eating, ever sh since she got pregnant, she had been eating a bowl of ice cream, like a small cup of ice cream, every, every evening when we were like watching Netflix or, or something. Mm -hmm. And it's been three days now where she started eating that ice cream again and it's not like a huge amount i mean we're probably talking like 100 150 calories you know just from what i can tell and and it's completely changed the whole situation to the point where she's not she's eating the same exact diet but now she's allowing herself or not feeling like she need to stop or restrict herself from eating that small cup of ice cream for her evening snack and everything is fine again yeah so perhaps we all have some sort of thing that's just emotionally connected to whatever has happened to you and just eating that food i mean if that's worth it to you and if it you know it, it's just food man so it, it's not like gonna ruin everything if you're if 80 to 90 percent of your your diet is spot on and, and so if you get to the point where you stop thinking so much about food I mean that's the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. Cool. Uh, all right, then let's jump on the next question, which is, um, like, what are your thoughts in general about full fat as opposed to low fat dairy? So, um, I heard you for the longest time recommend full fat dairy in general, but um, do you think there are any issues necessarily with low low fat dairy? Like some people say it's like inflammatory or whatever. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And perhaps also about the uh, satiety point like uh, what have you found to be more satiating for you uh, personally i think this is a really simple question actually it doesn't need to be expanded too much upon i mean adding fat to a meal or better said if you remove the fat from something that already contains fat then you also remove a lot of the health benefits and the satiating benefits of it and you can just go just google satiety index and look up what foods are the most satiating and and it's generally yeah, for sure, full-fat dairy is more satiating than low-fat or no-fat dairy. That's, that's almost a given. It, at, even at isocaloric amounts, even if you get more protein from the low-fat dairy to, to achieve that calorie amount. Uh, and that's simply because protein may inhibit hunger short-term, but without the fat to sort of balance things out with regards to insulin and, and glucagon, uh, you might not achieve the same long-term satiety. And, and as everyone will testify that's, that's tried just 
or stop removing all the fats from their diet and just allow the natural fats from foods um, be there, uh, they will all say that it kept them more satiated for longer. That's basically the gist of it. Right. Awesome. Yeah, I can agree. Well, it maybe can be a, a wise strategy for someone if they want to include some other fat, isolated fat sources, um, and they want to keep their energy intake in check. Um, but I guess in an isolated scenario, that's definitely. Right. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, um, what would be your advice for someone who is uh, prone to joint problems, tendon problems, and uh, tends to experience some inflammation? In their tendons and joints like me <laughs> uh, what would be the main consideration uh, training programming wise uh, in general just try adding more rest days get more recovery lower your volume uh, and also as most of you will see in the SSD system on the program is that we cycle from lighter to heavier loads uh, we don't go into the two to three rep max range that was brought up in yesterday's discussion that's you know we don't go that heavy anyway so it's not it's, it's a moot point but you should generally not stay with heavy loading for maybe more than four to six weeks or until the point where you start to feel beat up uh, i also tend to think that higher fre frequencies tend to work as long as you compensate with the volume now like like i i also said that adding more rest days would help but that's a function of your volume probably your volume and loading probably being too high and so connective tissue has a much slower protein turnover and blood flow than than muscle tissue so as the muscle gets stronger the stronger is very plastic and, and can adapt really fast uh, whereas connective tissue can't keep up with that and so the reason why you tend to get inflammation and, and joint and tendon issues is because you have increased your strength uh, and too too quickly in the muscle and and so the rest of the system can't keep up with those demands so generally just stretching out the progression more and and uh, allowing more recovery will will take care of that yeah and and, and perhaps this is a good way just uh, just want to bring up real quick that some people commented in the facebook group a couple of times when he talked about um prioritizing load progression as opposed to uh, volume or increasing volume over time is that they said that it's 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 more dangerous and it, it runs people into tr into trouble and uh, safety issues even more quickly. But I think it's really important to distinguish between progressing in load and increasing intensity endlessly. Like those things are not the same. Like you can increase load with you know with high reps and uh, never really go to really high intensities, and that would not be dangerous at all if done smartly. Yeah, and it's missing a huge part of the context, which is that half the cycle is spent lifting low loads yeah. for high reps. With a metabolic focus so you're preparing the joints and tendons and, and all the tissues with a high blood flow kind of thing uh, and, and basically these adaptations that you see with occlusion studies uh, or occlusion training and low load training and higher rep training uh, they're of uh, like increased blood flow and capillarization and, and fuel supply are of a huge benefit to the joints and tendons so they can actually prepare themselves for the heavier loads that are on in the last part of the cycle. So the way we have set up the program is already taking care of that problem. But for sure, if you're already working at your eight rep max or maybe even your five to six rep max and you just keep hammering that load progression, yeah, you're gonna run into problems. I'm not debating that at all, but that's not what we're recommending at all. That's, that's just completely missing the point. 
Yeah, exactly. Cool. So um, I think we have arrived to our final question, which is about variety in food. So um, a lot of people tend to recommend that it's good to include a variety of foods, you know, like the colorful green vegetables or well, colorful green. So a very many different colors in terms of fruits and veggies is a common thing that people say that that is a good way to ensure that you're getting a, a wide range of mac, uh, micronutrients into your diet and a variety of animal products. But, um, you know, evolutionarily speaking, like, I don't know, maybe we wouldn't actually have that much of a variety in our diet. So how should we think about the importance of variety in your diet on the whole? What do you think? Well, what, what paleo medicine in Hungary made me aware of and, and something that I have uh, found out to be true is that the more carbs you eat, the more micronutrients you actually need because uh, glucose and also all the plant foods and carb foods you would be eating uh, tends to inhibit uptake or, or bioavailability of, of uh, the micronutrients. Uh, and so they have studies where they, they're only eating meat and fat with some organ meats uh, once in a while, and there's like no nutrient deficiencies, and they're actually correcting various nutrient deficiencies. They have normal levels of all vitamins and minerals, and there's, you know, there's no problems there. But as soon as you start actually introducing variety, then you will probably need to maintain that variety simply to ensure that you're hitting all bases. That's because the nutrients in, in various plant foods tend to interact and disturb each other's bioavailability. And, uh, and so, for, for some, to, to some extent, yeah, I, I would have some sort of variety, but that doesn't mean you need to eat everything that you can find at the grocery store, because you know, for sure, this wouldn't be the case throughout evolution. Having said that, the, the micronutrients in modern foods are not what our ancestors had. So we have depleted the soil, we have manipulated uh, various foods to the point where the nutrients are almost non-existent. So we have higher demands also because we have the modern lifestyle that demands higher nutrient density. Uh, but but my default strategy just tends to be to reintroduce more animal-based foods and especially like liver and, and organ meats that and, and more of the traditional ways of cooking that neutralizes a lot of the um, the anti-nutrients and enzyme inhibitors that that are found in a lot of the plant foods. So I, I think you know one book I could recommend is is called Deep Nutrition. I can't remember the I think Shanahan something is is the author. Mm -hmm. Where it's just simply a sum summary of the, the cooking methods and preparation methods that we have been using for thousands of years that we have evolved to enable us to get the most nutrients out of the foods that we eat. And also another show is by, I, I believe, Mike, Michael Pollan on Netflix. It's called Cooked. How evolution shaped our food habits, or something, and that's also a very interesting show that goes into the, you know sourdough uh, breads and fermentation of veggies and soaking and sprouting and all that stuff, which has sort of gotten its new renaissance these days because it's uh, you know people are really really struggling with their health and 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 gut uh, problems, digestive problems, so it's it's uh, becoming more aware for modern humans as well, simply to figure out, you know, why is this becoming a more modern problem? Awesome. So cool. yeah, I, uh, I guess that's, uh, you know, a long way to answer uh, a short question. But, but I think in general, we don't need a variation in our food if we make sure to eat what we need in the amounts we need. 
Awesome. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I think I asked you all the questions that we had. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we can wrap it up. Uh, would you like to add anything else? Um, just stuff, something that's been on your mind or anything? Um, no, I guess at this point, uh, after having discussed, you know, training volume for the whole summer, I'm, I'm sort of getting to the point where I feel we have covered a lot of the most important stuff and it's time to get back to the whole holistic approach and what sustainable self-development is actually about. It's not micromanaging the details or getting stuck on whether you should eat high or low protein or, or micro-load exercises and, and what I eat in a day. It's, it's more about understanding the general principles and guidelines and, and actually to start self-experimenting and see what happens. Becoming more aware of what, what goes on in your environment and, what, and with your own body and stop being so obsessed about everything. I think it's I think it's basically time to chill the fuck out people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. yeah. So um it's cool that you asked all these interesting questions. Hopefully it gave you some nice insights, but um hopefully with all of that you put everything into perspective and you also realize alongside with having gotten answers to your questions why maybe those questions weren't the right ones to some extent to ask in the first place. <laughs> mm, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, then uh, see you in the next Q&A, everybody. And uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. All right, guys. Thank you for checking out this episode. Hope that you liked what you heard. And if you did like what you heard, then you will most definitely like our upcoming training and nutritional program, which again, if you're interested in seeing a training and nutritional program that is based on the concepts we've been talking about with Berger in the last several episodes on this podcast, then head over to sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program to get this package at a pre-sale price when it comes out on August 27 and to get an even bigger discount on this, then simply plug in your email address at sustainableselfdevelopment.com and you will get an even bigger discount. And of course, as always, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook community at the links provided in the show notes as well. So guys, thank you for checking out this episode and tuning in up until now. And with that, see you in the next episode.